Hey everybody and welcome to another episode of Soccer, Foot and Football. Uh, we have a very special episode today. Uh, first of all, I'd like to apologize uh, for having missed a couple episodes, um, but I was working on this episode, which is uh, probably the most important ever episode on, on soccer, foot and football thus far. Uh, today we're covering racial discrimination, uh, specifically racial discrimination in the United States. Uh, we're going to cover it pretty generally, um, but also try to give examples that are linked to the soccer world and the soccer community. Um, I've been thinking and reflecting a lot um, ever since uh, George Floyd's murder, and I've been trying to figure out ways to better myself, to educate myself, um, to get involved, and to try and be a part of the movement, uh, really. So there are kind of four things, ultimately, that I decided uh, I could and wanted to do as a part of that. So the first thing is something that I think everyone should do, and that's uh, educate yourself and, and self-reflect and think about what you've done wrong in the past and what you can do better. Um, of course, that goes for any topic, but specifically today, of course, racial discrimination. Uh, so I'll share some of my thoughts um, about that and, and what I did towards the end of this podcast. Um, the second thing that I uh, wanted to do was to go vote in Georgia's primaries. Um, I encourage everyone to register to vote and to vote in all the elections that you can. It's the fundamentals of democracy. Um, it's a way that people can have a voice and share their opinions and try to improve society. So I, I encourage everyone to, to do that if you can. Um, I waited five hours in line uh, on the last day of early voting here in Georgia, uh, which was last Friday. Um, but it was a, an experience that I felt uh, I needed to do. Um, the third part of of the process for me was going to a march or protest. Um, so I went to a Black Lives Matter march in, in Atlanta. Uh, for those of you that are familiar with Atlanta, we started at Pond City Market. Um, we went all the way to Piedmont Park, walked around Piedmont Park for a while. Um, the leaders of the protest spoke to us for a little bit, and then we uh, marched back to Pond City Market. Uh, I'm going to share some more thoughts on that and, and what happened in this podcast. Um, I also got a chance to speak to the organizers of the march after it all happened, so I, I will share their thoughts as well. Um, but overall, a, a great experience that I will um, expand on in just a minute. And then part four is this podcast right here. Um, I wanted to share what I've been learning Um and I wanted to get some of my friends and community involved in the podcast. So I spoke to three of my friends, three college athletes, and I wanted to get their, um, essentially I wanted them to be able to share their stories about racial discrimination, generally speaking, and specifically racial discrimination 
in terms of uh, growing up playing soccer and being college athletes. So I spoke to two of my African-American or black friends. Um, they told me they identified as, as both of those. And I also spoke to a, a Caucasian friend of mine who plays um, college soccer as well. So I'll share um, their thoughts in this podcast as well. So that's all the topics we're going to cover. And uh, I hope that you can take something from this podcast. Um, it's not an easy podcast to to listen to. I, I, I know that, but keep an open mind if you can. Um, be aware that anything that, that I say or, or that my friends say, we're really just doing our best to, to share our thoughts and to, to try and have a, a good dialogue. Um, but it, it is a, a complicated topic. Um, but I hope you, you can take something away from this and that you enjoy the podcast. All right, so the first thing I want to talk about is the uh, march or protest that I attended in Atlanta. And what I really want to focus on is how different it was compared to everything that we've seen in the news, on television, or on social media. Um, because really... What, at least in my personal experience, what I've seen on the news and, and on TV is one of two things. It's either uh, more police brutality in terms of tear gas, pushing protesters, and that confrontation, or it's the looting. Those are the two things that seem to make it on the news. The protest that I went to had nothing to do with either of those things. Um, I barely saw any cops except uh, a couple that were actually directing traffic uh, as the protesters were crossing the street. So that was great to see. And there was no looting whatsoever, no violence, no one trying to encourage others to perform acts of violence. None of that. Just people marching, um, protesting, chanting, and trying to show that... uh, trying to spread a positive message of equality. Um, it was great to see that there were Asians, whites, blacks, Latinos, and so on. There were old people, young people, couples, families, people that came by themselves, people that came with friends, just a huge mix of people. And it was great to see all these people that look different essentially come together and say, no, we're all the same. I mean, when I was marching and, and even before the march as people were gathering and I, and I saw the wide range of people, it, it just gave me goosebumps and it, and it warmed my heart to, to see so many quote unquote different people come together for the same message. And that's a message of peace, a message of justice and a, mis- a message of racial equality, um, of trying to promote change to encourage all of those things. Um, the chants were were peaceful, um, mostly chanting for justice. Um, chants such as um, hands up, don't shoot were also um, prominent. And of course, chanting the names of um, the victims as well. So it was really a, a great experience um eye-opening 
Um, people were, were welcoming within the march. Um, I, I spoke to people that I'd never met before. Um, and at the end of it, I also um, spoke to the organizers of the march. Um, so I do want to share that clip with you. Um, I spoke to them for just a couple minutes, and here's what they had to say. Uh, so to start off with, why did you guys decide to march today? Um, we basically came up with it together. We just wanted to respond to everything that's been going on lately. So we felt the best way to do that was like a large protest where, you know, we could get attention, media attention, have a whole bunch of people of all different races come out and, you know, come together for one common goal. And also just to change the demographic, a lot of people have been going downtown. And I think the reason um, I told Jalan that we went to Piedmont Park was because, like, a couple years back, a man was hung. By the uh, by the KKK and the police ruled it as a suicide, you know, and that's just that just goes to show how many names have haven't even been heard or people don't know about, you know. So we just wanted to reach a different area and demographic because it's important for these areas to know because the area low income communities we already face these problems and issues. We know we what's know going on. We need everybody to know what's going on. Yeah. So it's just about spreading the word. So what do you hope? changes uh, after this and more protests and more awareness? Um, I honestly hope after this that there's more of a state of equality and not even that, that we all have a fair opportunity to the same thing. We all have a fair opportunity to get to the same place because as we all know there's disparity, there's discretion, there's a whole bunch of different things that are going on which makes it not fair to be a black person in America. And I hope getting this media attention and everybody being able to see that this is important and black lives do matter, that we get to a point where we can... Policy change. Exactly. We need policy changes. Certain things need to be implemented. And me personally, I don't feel that I can speak too heavily on that because I am still educating myself. But definitely certain policies need to be implemented that, for lack of a better term, are, you know, what's best for us. Because when there are, like, um, what is it, Un not unnecessary roughness, but... Um, police brutality? Police brutality, yes. There's no, like... Um, accountability. Yeah, there's no accountability. Thank you. Thank no problem, girl. There's no accountability for things like that. And there's, there's no too many reason... police officers walking free for us to be comfortable. We shouldn't be able... We shouldn't, shouldn't have to fear for our lives. of someone who vowed to protect my life as if I'm not the person that they vowed to protect. Yes. And then you have to think about it. You know, we pay taxes to these communities. We put our money into these communities, and it's just not showing. It's not coming back to us. A lot of the um, times, what I really just want people to get from this is to really educate themselves and learn the importance of allyship and what it means to understand just because, you know, you're a different color and you may not go through what black people go through, you know? It's about educating yourself. If if, every, if it takes one person to just educate themselves and go out and to tell somebody else. So it's just more about progression, you know, changing people's mindsets. Getting a lot to a point where we don't have to fight anymore. Yeah, definitely. So what else can... Uh people, generally speaking, or I guess specifically white people do beyond education to help and, and show support? Hold their friends accountable, hold the people around them accountable, and hold themselves accountable for the things they may have done what they didn't realize. But you know, change comes with education. Once you know what you're doing, and if you know better, you do better. You understand, yeah. so. Also, taking the extra step. You know, yes, coming out here and protest, but going to these low-income communities, you have the resources, y'all have the money, you know. It's anything to just set up an after-school program and, and talk to kids and give them those, like I said, it starts with education personally for me, but, and providing, like, mental health services. So anything, any way that you can, or just going out and talk to somebody, reading a book, 
I'm, I just personally read, um, got a book. It's called The Miseducation Negro by Carter G. Woodson, The Miseducation of the Negro. And um, even I don't know everything, you know? We all so, have things to learn. Yeah, it's just a lot being of things open, to learn. Being, being open-minded. Open mm -hmm. Learning into educating yourself and being open to and understanding that just because, like like PJ said, just because you're not going through it doesn't mean that you have to turn a blind eye. It doesn't mean that you cannot sympathize or empathize with them. And it doesn't mean you're not implicated as well. Because everything, we all know, it, we're all in this together. Everything that happens to us affects y'all. Everything that affects y'all happens to us as well. So everybody needs to understand that we are all in this together. And it's and not to distract from Black Lives Matter, but it's so much more than just us. we just the bottom of everything. We've been feeling everything for too long. And I think other people are starting to realize that. I'm sorry I got off track, but definitely. Like, it's gay rights. It's women's rights. It's, it's a lot it's of movement rights. that needs to happen, but it all starts with us. Because we, and I'm black and I'm gay. Like, I feel everything. And not to make it about myself, but I know that there are other people in this world who have more than one title. Or, you know, associate themselves with more than one thing. So. There are so many different levels to oppression that mm -hmm. tackling them one by one is where I think we should really start. Because we can't move to this level and this level and this level if we haven't tackled the foundation of what's going on. The beginning. In, in the first place. Take your part. Use your gifts and talents that are beauty, um, of, you know, gifts and talents. Like I said, it's just, it's not just with, it's not just one area. It's, it's so many other places that you can touch in. And, and what's personal, you can personalize it, make it for you, you know? Especially in Atlanta. There's so much black life and black potential. And Support so a much black different owned business, things read a book, you know? And also making friends. You know, I think a lot of people, we don't, we don't understand. We also have to have a relationship as well. I can't, I cannot feel you if we don't have a relationship, you know? Make it, you know, we have to, we have to reach out and talk to each other, you know? They don't, at the end of the day, if you think about it, this whole system is built on division. We have social classes, middle class, we got upper class, and then there's low income communities. They're always trying to find a way to divide us, even by color, you know? So it's, it's about division. So it just starts with a conversation with anybody. You guys have anything else to add? Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter. All Black Lives Matter. All Black Lives Matter. Gay, straight, it doesn't matter. A huge thank you to Jessica, uh, Jalon, and Mo for taking the time to speak with me. And especially thank you for helping fight discrimination in the United States, specifically racial discrimination um, in Atlanta. Keep up the great work and keep up what you're doing. So in the next part of the podcast, what I want to do is um, share with you my converse, the conversations that I had with three of my friends that are college athletes. Uh, I spoke to Nate Leopold, um, Brian Green, as well as Jordan Madison. Uh, I spoke to Brian and Jordan separately. Then I spoke to Nate just because of calendar issues. Uh, but what I'm going to do here is try to intertwine our conversations um, just because we covered a lot of the same topics. Um, hopefully you can take something away from this and learn something. And a huge thanks again to those three uh, for sharing um, their stories and sharing their thoughts. First, I asked them to just introduce themselves. Yeah, my name is Jordan Madison. Um, I am from Sonoya, Georgia. I went to East Coweta High School, played soccer over there, um, then transitioned into Oglethorpe University and played soccer I guess you could say for all four years, but I was on and off um, for two years. What about all you, Brian? Right, I'm Brian? Oh, yeah. I'm Brian Green. Uh, I'm from Noonan, Georgia, not too far from Sonora. It's basically the same place. I uh, went to EC as well, played soccer there. 
and then uh, ended up following Jordan and playing for a year. And I still love the sport of soccer. It just didn't work out in terms of playing playing at that level. But found a different sport. But that's a whole another story. <laughs> First of all, my name is Nathan Leopold. Um, I went to the Atlanta International School from the age of five years old all the way through 12th grade um, and graduated there with, a, with an international baccalaureate degree. Um, and then I went on to the University of Rochester over the past four years where I uh, spent four years on the varsity men's soccer team uh, and got a major got a double major in international relations and business and then a minor in legal studies and so I think there's a lot of interesting you know research that I've come across that I think I've seen uh, in in throughout my college soccer career there's some overlap between the stuff that I studied within the political science world and how soccer in many ways is sort of a microcosm of uh, how the political world works and how we organize as people. So I'm really interested to share some of that from, from my own perspective. One of the first questions I asked them was what white privilege was to them. Not being afraid of getting pulled over for some odd reason, or just driving near a cop in general, really. Um, that's honestly like the main thing that I can like really think of. But I guess... There's yeah. more, of course. Yeah, there's a lot to it. But I, I would say very similar. I think that's like a very specific uh, situation even I've dealt with that, you know, I've been I've had to been had to be scared or kind of just very on guard um, when being pulled over. But like in general, I'd say that white privilege is um, just the advantages systematically that are there for people that are white of white descent. So, and it's not like an, a hit at people who are white. It's just like, it's an inherent, um, it's an inherited advantage that you have from the day you're born, you know? In addition, this is what Nate had to say. First of all, the answer is complex. Uh, and I, I don't want to, I don't want to act like I do have any, anywhere near the perfect definition, but I can mm-hmm. certainly tell you what it is from my experience. Um, which is an endowed, what I would call an endowed benefit, an endowed position that I did nothing to earn um, and I do nothing on a daily basis to maintain. Um, But it allows me benefits. My whiteness allows me benefits uh, in subtle ways and not so subtle ways. Um, Be those interactions with the police where I am suspected as much more innocent than other African-American counterparts or black or brown counterparts or uh, or other ways in terms of no, never really being victim to any sort of microaggressions where nobody uh, nobody says you know hey you're smart for a white kid that's not that's not something anybody ever says so I never have to deal with almost presumed lack of intelligence or presumed, like I said, criminality. I then asked them what systemic racism was to them. So the way I um, conceptualize systematic racism 
is really in terms of the legacies of uh, more explicit racism. So when we talk about systemic racism, we're talking about institutional institutions that are still dealing with the side effects, the collateral damage and the legacy of ra- truly racist regimes, mm-hmm. namely slave in the United States, that's, that's slavery and the Jim Crow South. Um, and so when we talk about systemic racism, we're talking about how, how overtly and explicitly racist institutions such as slavery and Jim Crow still have a persistent effect in our institutions and our systems today. Jordan had similar ideas and expanded a little further. Well, let's go back years, right? Let's go back 400 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, slavery is, you know, here and is, and is prevalent, right? Um, the government sets up a whole country set on the ideals of making wealth based off the back of backs of one race. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and they create laws and whatnot that only benefit them because the people that are working to make them money aren't human. So we live in a system that was made, that was made for the white man and woman. Right. And mainly the white man. man. Um, so, and then you fast forward yeah, slavery is abolished and everything, but you have things like Jim Crow that are put in place, um, which allows basically slaves slaves aren't given the reparations once they're free. They're just set out into the world to just, hey, figure it out like an animal. Just figure it out. Um, no money, no place to live. Only way that people of African-American descent made it through were through the help of some white people. We couldn't make it out without white people. Don't get me wrong. Um, because the system was not set up. So if we weren't helped for white pe- by white people, the system was not set up to help us in the first place. And then you fast forward even more, you have things like Black Wall Street, the Black Panther Party, things that we created for ourselves as black people that were, were destroyed by white people and the government. So that's what systematic racism is. We don't have the reparations, this, this stuff that we need to even have that generational wealth that we're looking for. Um, and, and like like some white uh, our white counterparts have. And again, that's not a hit at white people. All we ask is that you recognize that you have that advantage because you have years of wealth that was built off the backs of basically what they considered animals. Our discussions then got a little bit more specific. I had personally never had the talk with my parents about what to do if a police officer pulled me over. Um, but my guests had a little bit of a different experience. Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, the main thing that my mom told me to do is just keep your hands on the steering wheel, just talk politely, just just try to be nice as possible, that's the reason. Uh, and just try to just stay as calm as you can and just hope for the best, really. Like, I've been pulled over a couple of times, and it's real nerve-wracking, but I've l- luckily I haven't had any, like, serious, like, situations like occur where people are, like, trying to have it out for me. Uh, I just remained calm, and I made it out just fine. Thank God for that, but... Uh, that's not always the case with others, but yeah. Um, 
I think Brian knows. Like I had, <clears throat> I had several experiences. <laughs> yeah. Perhaps, but um, but for me, it was more like I, I would say the talk for me was like, Jay, just make sure you always have your ID ready before they get to your door. Um, always have your. Uh, I say I like to. I like. I usually have my ID in my pocket, my wallet in my pocket. But as soon as I'm getting pulled over. I, my dad told me to always call him. So I instantly, I'm like, hey, Siri, call dad. So, you know, that's what it does. And then um, while their phone is calling my dad, I got, I'm getting my wallet out. I don't even go to my glove compartment, I'll be honest. They can look up my insurance. I don't reach for it. Because um, I, I like, honestly, going through, I'm not sure how y'all glove compartments is set up. <laughs> but mine is very messy. <laughs> So, uh, I, I think, yeah, I don't have enough time to go through that paperwork while, before the cop gets to my, when my, uh, before the cop gets to my door. So I just say, Hey, I have insurance. You can look me up. Here's my ID. And my hand is always already out the window with the ID and then my right hand on the steering wheel. So that's, that's what I was told. That's my routine never changed. So. Nate also had a talk with his parents, but he made sure to explain the difference between his talk and the talk that his black and brown friends have had. Yeah, honestly, no. Uh, certainly not to the extent that some of my, you know, black and brown friends have had. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, there's a small conversation that I remember having with my parents about treating an officer with respect simply so that you can get off scot-free and not have to pay a ticket. Um, but it was never a conversation about, it was never a life and death conversation. It was never, or even if it's not a life and death uh, conversation, it was never a conversation that could have truly irreparable harm, um, if done improperly. In other words, my parents never had to have a conversation with me where if I didn't listen exactly to what they said, I could, I could wind, I could wind up in jail and have lifelong consequences because of it. That serious of a conversation never occurred. It never had to occur. Um, like I said, the only, the only extent of, to, the, to the conversation that I did have as a kid growing up, especially once I started driving, was mm-hmm. simply the fact that if you want, you know, if you want the greatest chance of not getting a ticket, if you get pulled over, treat the cop, treat the cop with respect. I then asked them to expand on some of their personal experiences and stories. Well, so the first time I got pulled over, I did. I honestly, growing up in Sonoya, never realized I was different, right? Because it's like its own little bubble. Mm-hmm. Um, Coweta County in itself is separated from the outside world. So I got pulled over first time coming home from like our rivalry uh, football game. And my friends and I, it was four of us, we were in two separate cars. Um, I was by myself in my car at first. And then uh, my friend had the other two people. And we stopped by McDonald's close to our close to my house. We all live in the same neighborhood, so close to my house. And um, my we, we got food. My friend forgot some napkins, so he got out of my car and went inside. He went inside to go get um, napkins. And then that's when he... He didn't come back and get back in my car. I drove by myself after that. Um, he got back in the other car. And so there were cops outside the McDonald's. 
and they saw my friend run inside to go get napkins, but they, I guess they assumed something was going on. Um, I have a very, very unique car. Uh, very unique. Like if you saw it, you'd be like, Oh, that's one of a kind. Okay. (laughs) Uh, so it stands out. Don't get me wrong. And, um, the cops saw the person get out of my car, I'm assuming. And, when he pulled me over, he followed me three miles down the road. Let's like not forget that. He followed me from the McDonald's all the way down the road to my neighborhood. Finally pulls me over in my neighborhood, and I ask him what's wrong, and he says that my uh, tag light was out. And I said, okay. Um, I was like, all right, so what 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 is what are, what are the consequences for that? I didn't know this. Again, I just got my license. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Then he took my ID, he came back after he ran my info, and he was like, all right, I'm just giving you a warning, but um, let me just say something. And he's like, I've been in this business for over 10 years, and I know when somebody's doing something wrong. So whatever it is you're doing, whether there's drugs or whatever, stop it. It'll save your life. And I was like, I was like, I'm not doing anything. I, I, I honestly had never even seen marijuana or any of that at that age. Like, <laughs> like so it, was, it was just funny. It's like, I, I didn't think that was an issue, but my dad was on the phone. Remember that? So mm-hmm. my dad was on the phone when it happened. So he heard it all. He's like, did he just profile you? And so my parents reported it. And then uh, after they reported it to the chief, he, the chief had a conversation with the officer and the officer lied to the chief and said that I went down a street. Um, I won't name the name of the street, but the street is known for going through like the, the poor area also known as, I guess the hood of Sonoya. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know for a fact, I did not go down that street. I'd never go down that street. <laughs> I don't even remember what that street looks like. So mm-hmm. like, I, so that's like that's not a, that's not part of my routine. I've never gone down that street, especially not at ten o'clock, eleven o'clock at night. You know. Yeah. So so especially that's not the fastest way to my house. So why would I go down that street? But he lied and told the man that and said that um uh the and it said that it also looks suspicious that my friend ran back inside the McDonald's. Um, and he's also black, my friend that went back in. So I'm like, well, what's suspicious about him going in McDonald's to get a napkin? Unfortunately, this was not a one-off example for Jordan, and he had other similar stories to share. Yeah, so, I mean, I've been pulled over multiple times for, like, people would say, the officers would say my, my lights were too dim. Somebody pulled, one pulled me over coming back from community service. Um, I can't, I was in Noonan. I got pulled over for, uh, he said, he said my taillights were too dim and I get pulled over constantly for random stuff. Like my, my window tint, they say my window tint's too, too dark. It's legal. All of it, everything on my car, nothing on my car is illegal. Trust me. I've Mm -hmm. already verified it. Um, so when I get pulled over, it's always like, well, this this is an issue. This is an issue, and I tell them, "Hey, a cop has already pulled me over for this exact same reason, and we've already, you know, hashed it out, and he he found out he was wrong." So, uh, I mean, go ahead if you want to check, you can check too. Um, but I'm wasting. I promise you, you're wasting nobody but mine and your time. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and that I got pulled over in 2017, I think seven times. Wow. 
for just about the same things. Never got a ticket. I had one ticket in 2016. No, I'm sorry, not 2016. Um, in 23rd, oh geez, when did I get my license? 2013, I got one ticket, and that was for um, speeding. Now that, <laughs> we can't deny that. I was, I was speeding. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, I, did, I mean, I did my I did my uh, community service and got that off my record and stuff. So it's not even that one wasn't even a big deal. And I and I took like I can accept accountability, but yeah, there was just small instances where I you know been scared with the police and they tried to get me with things. But I'm also like a little di- a little different the way I handle things because as soon as a cop comes to my car, I'll say, "Hey, yeah, I got my dad on the phone. Here's my ID. Here you go." Like I'm already ready, you mm-hmm. know. Yeah. So, but but even the the fact that you have to be ready like that is shows that there's a problem. Like, I if I get pulled over, I don't think my first reflex is to call my dad and and have my hand out the window already. Like, that's right. just not something that would come into my mind. Like, I right. feel like well, I would be scared of maybe the ticket or the fine or whatever. It sounds like you're scared of much more important issues. Which is the problem. Exactly. Brian shared his personal stories as well. It's my senior year high school. It was in the winter time, so um, my windows were frozen or covered with frost. So I had had enough time to clear out the front one, but not the back one. And as I was driving down to school, I was going down this road. I thought it was 55 or something like that. And it was really 50. And that's like not really a big deal. And I felt like I was graphic, so no big deal. As I'm going down, I go a little ways and I start to see flashing through the ice on the back window. And I look in my rear view mirror, my side mirror, and I'm like, oh, there's a cop behind me. I was like, cool, this is nice to have to deal with at 8 o'clock in the morning. So I pull up. The first thing that I thought about was, okay, let's go and pull over someplace where there are at least people around or if I yell, if something happens, people can come out. So I went and I parked, like, just in a neighborhood uh, that was along the street stop there. Uh, I made sure to have the window down before he even got out of his car, had my wallet out, everything. Um... And I just sat there, had my hands on the wheel, and he just told me that, hey, you're speeding a little bit, and I'd been following you for a good bit, too. And he was like, is there anything going on? And I was just like, I'm sorry. I didn't know uh, you were following me. I couldn't really see through the ice. And he took my license and everything and took him a little bit to just run everything. And he came back, and he gave me a warning. Um... Luckily, that was it, but that was probably one of the more nervous experiences I've had. Nothing, I haven't had anything, like, super traumatic. Uh, Another one was when I was coming home from my girlfriend's house one night. It was in the middle of the night, uh, and I actually, I had a license, but it wasn't my updated license. So I was supposed to get my class D or whatever. And I didn't know that at the time. Uh, but 
was pulled over and um, he told me that my uh, license plate light was out. So the same thing that happened in Jordan. It's in the middle of the night and he looks at my ID and he's like, yeah, you know, you only got a few minutes. He's like, if it was any past, if it was past midnight, it's like I would have had to, I had to take you or whatever. And I was probably less than five minutes away from my house. Mm-hmm. So just for him to like, kind of just something like that, it's kind of freaked me out a little bit. But I don't know. I just nothing super traumatic. It's just scary having to deal with it. I then asked Brian and Jordan if they always had to be on guard with regards to their race and just going through daily situations, like walking through Atlanta or going to the store. Now, they told me it depends heavily on where they are, but sometimes they do. When I walk through, say, like downtown Sonoya, I'm always on guard. Like, that is that is me. I'm like, yo, these are country, these, these are countries, uh, stores, country owners. I don't know exactly what I'm getting myself into. So just watch what I'm doing. You know, I just watch what I'm doing. I don't touch any, if I go in a store, I don't touch anything. Um, I make sure to greet people, greet the owner, greet whoever's at the front desk, whatever, before I even get to shopping or, cause I don't want to be profiled from the beginning. And I know these are just steps, steps for me to make sure that I cover my tracks, right? So that no one can accuse me of stealing or attempting to steal or something like that, right? Um, Because that's a big thing. You know, I've been followed around a store. Brian, you may have and you didn't realize it. Oh, I have. Yeah. So, like... That's where I'm on... That's where I put myself more on guard. Once I realize that you're doing that, then I'm just like, okay, well, now I gotta just make sure I'm not touching too many things and if I... No, I want it, then I'll pick it up, but... Right, right, yeah. Being followed around a story, you start to realize it. You're like, oh. And it, for me, it only happened when I was with, like, a group of friends. Mm-hmm. Same. We then started talking about soccer specifically, and Nate set the stage really well, um, talking about things he noticed from a very young age. That when I joined a uh, youth soccer team and had... The majority of my teammates were uh, were black and brown, either either African American or Hispanic. They were they were largely largely uh, underprivileged uh, economically, um, mm-hmm. and lived an entirely different life than I did. had had to buy much lower level cleats, uh, much cheaper cleats than I did. Um, and so that's an example of, you know, a, a, a more a more uh, systemic problem. The fact that my black and brown teammates, major the majority of them came from much poorer families, um, and that was something that I had to reckon with very early on, and and under and try and reconcile how it was that sport as the great equalizer um, could expose these persistent inequalities, financial, economic, social, civil inequalities. Do you think that impacted the team dynamic at all or or the friend groups that were created within the team or or anything like that? Yeah, I, I, well, I'd like to say that it actually enhanced the team dynamic because, again, so I'm, I'm a firm believer that sport 
and specifically soccer or football truly is the great equalizer. Um, it allows us to it allows us to join together for a common goal, regardless of socioeconomic class, regardless of race, regardless of religion. So, if anything, I would like to say that it enhanced it. But there were certain times, of course, where some of my teammates, you know, when when they came over to my house before or after a game, I could tell they felt uncomfortable because of witnessing the the house that I lived in, which was much more. I suppose grand than, than what they were used to, um, and that obviously makes me incredibly appreciative and grateful for the financial economic situation that I was born into by pure luck. Um, but it but it certainly again it shows the juxtaposition that exists systemically in our country uh, in in that way. And so, although like I said, there are there, there's there's one aspect of it that really shows how that diversity enhanced the team and united us, but it also made people feel uncomfortable at different moments, for sure. Meanwhile, Jordan and Brian were the only two black players on their soccer team for a very long time. So they spoke to me about having to act differently just because of their race and having to accept joke after joke after joke and trying to just brush it off. Um, it was It was like we had to almost deal with it so that we could one get playing time mm-hmm. and just to to just not break the bond between the, yeah. play, the the teammates right like they we didn't want any animosity we didn't want confrontation we just wanted yeah. to play the sport right yeah so yes that we became desensitized to it i don't know how many times brian and i have had to deal with someone jokingly saying the n-word on the soccer field uh, or saying a black joke that is like highly offensive but you know especially brian taught you know brian has his father in his life but obviously he doesn't see his dad as much as he sees um his mom so it's like it's a different situation but but like people make jokes about his dad like oh you don't have your dad in your life like stuff like that it's, it's like okay i get it was a joke but what was yeah your Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. So yeah, and these are supposed to be your friends, like your teammates. Exactly. 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 My guests also shared much more blatant examples of racism on the soccer pitch. I've heard my fair share of racial slurs directed towards teammates. Um, in fact, guys that are working right alongside me. So I'm a left back, mm-hmm. and uh, and over the years, I've had I've had um, two or three center backs working right beside me. Um, you know, day in and day out who are uh, either black or brown. And um, I've often heard, like I said, racial slurs directed at them in the middle of a game. Um, and, and that is a moment where, frankly, I think, and FIFA, FIFA as a whole is really deal, trying to deal with this, uh, well, and, and reckoning with how they're going to deal with it moving forward. But that's a moment in my eyes where the game has to stop. Uh, where where absolutely we we have to put we have to we have to be strong. Where it is undeniable that we as uh, and I'm speaking from soccer's perspective, uh, you know, in, in this instance, but that we as a sport simply do not tolerate that. Um, and I'm disappointed to say that that wasn't the case when I've heard those racial slurs because when when we did end up 
telling the referee at the time uh, because he, on, on multiple instances, whoever the referee was, ended up saying that because he never hurt, he didn't hear it, he was unable to do anything. In high school, Brian and Jordan lived one of those experiences. This day really made me upset. This is the day that I decided that once I leave Coweta County, I'm not coming back. Um, we were we were down in Houston County at Houston County High School playing uh, playing them. They're a good team. I don't know if you know Jake from UGA. He's on that. Uh, he came from that high school. Mm-hmm. Um, it's funny because he was actually in the crowd when this happened. Um, yeah, you didn't know that, Brian, did you? I didn't. <laughs> yeah, because he was on the baseball team. The baseball team had just played a game, and they came over to the soccer field. Uh, that's yeah. right. So, so um, <clears throat> basically, what happened was we were on the field. Uh, I got the like a ball. I got a ball played down the line. I was at left wing, so I got a ball played down the line, and I was running on it as I ran past, kind of fighting with the uh, right back. Um, I ran past the stands of the opponent team opposing team and one of them yelled one of them yelled the n-word um with the hard r towards me and and i stopped i was like ref did you not you you didn't hear that did you because i know you heard it he was right there i know you heard it and Mm -hmm. so i look at the ref and then i look at my teammates because i want I, i look at the crowd i look at everybody i'm like what do i do like i was so stuck I was like, I was like, I've never experienced someone like I've experienced it from my teammates as jokes, but I've never experienced someone blatantly out of disrespect. Call me that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And and like, so I, I, I looked at the crowd, tried to figure out what to do. And then I look at my teammates. And I'm like, well, if my teammates are going to ride with me, then we can make the, you know, Whatever, we'll, we'll we'll make it happen. Like, but I can't just let this slide. I I was ready to run run up on the on the opponent opposing uh, opposing crowd and say something. Mm-hmm. At least say something. Uh, nobody backed me. My teammates, nobody backed me. Um, eventually, coach, the coach from the opposing team, Brian, wasn't it? Yeah, came over and yeah, he came over later. Yeah, he came over much later. I'm telling you, like yeah. it was at the end of the game. End of the game, he had he came over and told his fans to to not use racial slurs and stuff like that. And I'm like, this was like 20 minutes ago. Where were you? <laughs> like, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, and it it really I wasn't even hurt by the fact that he took so long to go over there. I was hurt by the fact that none of my teammates backed me. And um, maybe it's because they don't really understand the power that comes with it, right? Or but regardless, if we're teammates, if we're teammates, I would ride with you the way that I expect you to ride for me. Nate and I also spoke about what soccer players and athletes in general can do, and what solutions the soccer community can provide to racial discrimination on and off the pitch. Soccer world and the professional athletes world. Athletes have to recognize, and they do recognize, and they're starting to recognize more and more every day how much of a leadership role they play in society. Um, and any um, any expression or statements of disdain towards racism 
both in the sport but really in the greater context of society is not only welcome, it's necessary. Um, and I think that that is where we're seeing so much love being retroactively poured out to Colin Kaepernick, um, where at the time there were two camps. Well, granted, there are still two camps as to whether or not people support him or don't support him. But the camp of those supporting his actions to take a knee during the national anthem is growing. Um, and that shows, that shows again, the powerful voice, um, that athletes have. And so, yes, this is very important that, that the players in the Bundesliga are taking a stand. It's very important that teammates of Drew Brees called him out on his, uh, hesitancy towards listening to the black community in their struggle for equality and justice. Um, Athletes have such a powerful role, not only in the microcosm of sports, but in society uh, as well. And so to, 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 to say that those voices, you know, to say shut up and dribble is to me not only a disservice and disrespectful and dehumanizing to the athlete, but it's a disservice to society because of the power and influence that those athletes can wield uh, in this in this global fight. Mm-hmm. And what about uh, in terms of um, like you were talking about earlier, the referee couldn't do anything because he didn't hear the the issue of of the racial slur. Do you think uh-huh. there is a solution or? maybe solution's too big a word, a way to tackle that problem on the field, both in professional games as well as uh, college and even youth games? Yeah, I think the solution to that is a zero-tolerance policy, um, where in, in a game, be it professional, be it college, youth, high school, what have you, um, if there is an allegation during the game made to the referee, the game stops. The game stops. And what ensues, you know, can be up for debate and we can figure out logistically how to best basically do a quick investigation or do a longer investigation. But the game, first and foremost, has to stop because that is as serious of an offense as we're dealing with in this sport, um, in any sport, and I'd argue in society as a whole. So if, you're, if somebody is willing to make a false, accusa- false accusation that an, an opponent made a racist comment, that's, that's a problem. But I don't think that we're at the – because of the gravity of racism and the importance of addressing racism, I think we have to take everybody's accusation uh, of somebody making a racist comment, of an opponent making a racist comment at face value and trust them. Um, and, and so with that understanding, every time somebody comes to a ref and says, hey, an opponent just made a racist comment, um, it, it, that the game has to be stopped. And we have to address it right then and there. Uh, in front of everybody, in front of the stand. And, 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 the, and the, um, the fans, frankly, don't need to be shielded from that um, because the player, the opponent who makes a racist comment needs to know that that is not right. 
Um, and by the way, if it's a fan who makes a racist comment, uh, and that is brought to the attention of the refereeing, the refereeing squad, that also should stop the game because fans are just as much, just as much a part of this sport and all sports, uh, as the players and have just as much of a responsibility to maintain the integrity of the game, um, and the respect of the game as anybody else. And so I, I think the solution to, you know, racist, ra- racial slurs being used within sport uh, is, is, to, is to outright stop the game and have a zero tolerance policy. That, ki- that player is kicked out. That player is kicked out of the game and, you know, pending review could be removed from the team and, and removed from play altogether. Uh, I mean, it's just such a serious thing in our society. Society today, we cannot, we can't mess around. Right. We can't mess around. Nate also tried to help me answer the question of what individuals can do to better themselves and join the fight. So the end of, I mean, racism in in my eyes. Um, UNESCO, the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization has as their um, has in their mandate has in their motto that peace is built in the minds of men and women and and the idea behind that is that well the, how that applies to racism in this context is that racism is built in the minds of women in the minds of men and women and it can also be deconstructed in the minds of men and women um, it reminds me of the Nelson Mandela quote that hate is learned and therefore you can unlearn it obviously i'm paraphrasing you know his his direct quote but the idea here is that this is an individual battle so when you're asking the question as to what can individuals do uh in order to fight racism both individually and systemic systemically it starts on the individual level um and so the first thing that I would say, and Dr. Cornell West talks about this, that we all have demons in us. We all have gangsters in us. We all have an inclination to sort of bail on our on who we are at times uh, and, and forget our moral and our ethical values. Um, and so it's our job to contain those. It's our job to fight against those individually. When we, uh, when we have implicit biases, we need to acknowledge them and then fight against them and not act on them. Uh, when and, and then when it comes to the bigger picture, how can individuals, uh, you know, after taking care of themselves and making sure that they, they themselves are addressing their own racial biases, how can they have an effect on the bigger system? And the answer to that is voting, uh, specifically in the United States. There's nothing, as far as I'm concerned, and again, as somebody who's political science, there's very few things more. There are very few things more robust in the American democracy than the ballot box. We have a unbe- We have we, we have an unbelievable electoral system. Now, I, I have to say a disclaimer: it's under threat. Specifically in the state of Georgia, there have been instances, as recently as the recent governor's race, where the voting rolls are under threat where equal voting, um, equal voting rights for, for people of different color are under threat. And so we have to act with what we have, 
and it's like I said, although it might be under threat, it's still uh, the ballot. The American ballot box is still incredibly powerful to provoke very, very swift change. If you don't like the elected official who's in office, vote him out. If you don't like the policies that an elected official is doing, vote him out. If you like most of the policies that an elected official is doing, but you don't like one of them, email them, phone call them, all of the above in order to pressure them and hold them accountable to do the work that needs to be done on the systemic level to fight against the legacy of slavery, the legacy of Jim Crow uh, that, that, that exists in our country. And so, again, both on the, the individual level and the systemic level, individuals are at the heart of change. Uh, and, so, and so we have to acknowledge that, in, especially in this moment, when we see the, atro- the atrocity that, that happened with George Floyd and, many, and so many others, we have to acknowledge that it's our responsibility on an individual level. It's our personal responsibility to invoke change if we are if we are serious about this. That was about it for the interview, but before we stopped talking, I asked him if they had anything else to add. Jordan decided to focus on the difference between being in a predominantly white area and a predominantly black area, and illustrating that through comparing himself and one of his friends. He grew up, he grew up in a predominantly black area, whereas I grew up in a predominantly white area, but we both experienced different types of racism. The systematic side where I experienced blatant, blatant disrespectful, you know, um, racism. You know, but you don't see that type of racism as as much nowadays. The the blatant stuff. Most of the time, you see the subtle stuff. But the systematic racism um, part that he saw was like, okay, we don't have the same education being in this lower income area because property taxes fund education, and then education is poor because where there's low income in the area, and so that is a that is a big issue in the system as well and the fact that he he saw the system systematic side way before i did i didn't see that systematic side until i met more black friends in college and re- realized what they went through in high school um uh, and so when they get out of high school they don't have the education or the the study skills sometimes to even really last in a college classroom because it's not built that system at that point wasn't built for you to succeed. If you succeed, it's because you went above and beyond on your own. But there's no reason that any black male, white male, white female, black female, anybody should come out of high school saying, okay, my school didn't teach me anything about any of this. Um, and uh, my study skills, none, none of this was taught. I, didn't, I wasn't taught study skills in high school, right? Okay. Nobody should come out of high school saying that and going into college just learning how to study. Um, I think another, like a big issue for us, uh, like black history wasn't taught the same as well. It's different in a a predominantly, predominantly black school. They actually teach you the full depth of black history because they know that's what you are and that's what the majority of the school is. But like in a white, white, predominantly white school, you get a very brushed over version of black history. And then when you get around black people, you're like, I didn't know that. It's almost like a joke as well. Yeah. 
Like, I, I, it looks really bad. It looks really bad if you don't know what your, your black history. You know, I did most of my research on my own, I'll be honest. In his concluding remarks, Nate set a fantastic parallel between the world of soccer and what society needs to do today. Yeah, just, just one last thing uh, that I think to draw a parallel between what I've learned in soccer uh, and, and, and what we're trying to do as a country and frankly what we've been trying to do as a country since 1776, uh, which is create a more perfect union. Um, and, and what I mean by that in terms of how it relates to soccer is that very often in sports we talk about you're never going to have a perfect game, but you can certainly strive for perfection. If you're not prepared to fail and fail again, then you're in for a you're in for a horrible ride. But the important thing along the way, as you're failing, is to always be striving for better and always be striving for more. The only thing that you can do in a situation in in soccer or in this battle for justice is to keep trying to be more and more perfect. And that's the exact thing that's enshrined in the American ideal, uh, which is that collectively we're working towards a common goal and we're working towards a perfect common goal. And although we may not get there within our lifetimes, we can certainly strive to get there. Um, And so the same spirit that, you know, leads you to get up from, to, to, to fight back from a 1-0 deficit in a soccer match has to, has to also motivate you to fight for justice on a daily basis, like I said, on an individual and a systemic basis uh, or, or context. So that, I think, is, is really the key parallel and the key message that I think sports teaches us uh, about how to f- continue this fight for justice, which is never give up. I want to thank Jordan, uh, Nate, and Brian again for coming onto the podcast and sharing their thoughts. Um, I think they did a fantastic job, and, and I hope that uh, you guys can, can get something from what they've shared. Um, so thank you again to you three. In the final part of the podcast, I want to encourage you all to do some self-reflection and to educate yourself. Uh, It's really important that we all do that on an individual level so that we can create changes on a bigger, uh, more systemic level. Uh, I know I've grown a lot over the past couple weeks and months. I've learned. um, One of my favorite uh, pieces that I really learned from was from Emmanuel Aiko, the ex-NFL player. He released a great video trying to help um, people educate themselves, and I'll leave a link to that in the podcast description. Um, but I encourage you all to to do the same and to, to try and learn um, because really it's like one of these, like the old saying goes, only idiots don't change their minds. Um, so I encourage you to go out, educate yourself, and see how you can improve and, and better yourself. Uh, with that in mind, um, I want to end the podcast with 8 minutes and 46 seconds of silence because that's how long uh, the officer's knee was on George Floyd's neck. And I want you to think about a couple things during that 8 minutes and 46 seconds of silence. Obviously, I want you to think about George Floyd. I want you to think about how long that 8 minutes and 40 seconds, 46 seconds feels uh, 
just in silence. I want you to think about how long it must have felt for George Floyd. And, and I'd like you to, to think about how you can improve on a personal level and how society can improve as a whole with regards to these issues. Um, so I'm going to conclude here. I appreciate you guys listening to this long podcast uh, and listening to these difficult conversations. Um, thank you again to everyone who featured on the podcast and uh, helped me get through this. And I hope that uh, everyone can just see we're, we're all human at the end of the day. And um, we can learn and grow and, and hopefully make the world a better place. So with that, here is 8 minutes and 46 seconds for you to reflect.